This is Tanakhcast. Welcome back to Tanakhcast. This is episode 11, Genesis chapters 36 through 39. So, despite Yitzchak and Rivka's efforts in providing a solid Jewish education and all those wholesome Jewish values at home, Esav runs off to marry Canaanite women, and, and thank God that Bubby and Zadie were in their graves because the list of begets that follows would surely have put them there. If you don't go to temple, you don't leave the house at all. Chapter 37 begins what is arguably the most dramatic, best-paced, storied section of Genesis, the story of Yosef, but also the story of his brother Yehuda, and then the story of Yosef again, which brings us back to very familiar territory, sibling rivalry or to be more precise sibling rivalries or is it siblings rivalry yosef now a strapping lad of 17 is also a bit of a tattletale and a bit of a show-off and a bit of a hey everyone let me tell you what i dreamt last night which in some cases is grounds for murder and no jury in the land would convict so by the middle of chapter 37 yosef is at the bottom of a well his ornamented coat torn and blood-soaked and by the end of the chapter, Yosef is sold into slavery, and his father, Yaakov, once again falls prey to a ruse. This time, the sons of Yaakov are the perpetrators, reporting falsely that Yosef has been devoured by an ill-tempered beast. While Yosef is sold and resold, and eventually ends up in the house of Potiphar, a court official to Pharaoh and chief of the palace guard, Yehuda is arranging a marriage for his son, Er. But Er, according to the text, quote, did ill in the eyes of Adonai, and Adonai caused him to die. So, according to a tradition later called Yibum, or Leveret marriage, Er's childless union with Tamar thus compels Onan, Er's younger brother, to step up and carry on the family name. However, Onan curiously believed that, quote, the seed would not be his, so, quote, whenever he came into his brother's wife, he let it go to ruin on the ground so as not to provide seed for his brother which resulted in Adonai causing him to die as well. Yehuda, fearing for his youngest son Shelah, counsels Tamar to wait until the boy grows up. Meanwhile, Yehuda's wife dies, and Shelah grows up, and Yehuda has yet to arrange the marriage, so Tamar takes the matters into her own hands. She hears that Yehuda is heading to Timnah for the gez, or sheep shearing. She removes her widow's garments and replaces them with less somber garb, and heads for Enaim, a well and rest stop on the way to Timnah. Yehuda sees her, takes her for a whore, and solicits sex from her, and as he has no payment on hand, Tamar takes his seal, cord, and staff as a down payment. They consummate the deal, and as the text reports, quote, she became pregnant by him. When Yehuda sends the payment later with his friend, inquiries are made after the, quote, holy prostitute, but the locals reply, there has been no holy prostitute here. After three months, however, Tamar begins to show, and Yehuda is told that Tamar has, quote, played the whore. In fact, she has become pregnant from whoring. Yehuda's immediate reply, bring her out and let her be burned. Suffice it to say, once Yehuda understands that the twins inside Tamar are his, the ending of this story is ambiguous, but does not involve anyone being immolated. Peretz, the firstborn twin, according to the genealogy in the book of Ruth, is the great forebear of King David. So I guess that's a happy ending. Meanwhile, back in Egypt, Yosef rises in prominence in Potiphar's house, but Potiphar's wife has other ideas. 
When Yosef flees, Potiphar's wife claims that the Hebrew tried to lie with her, which sounds a lot like attempted rape, except that the punishment for rape is death. So I guess attempted rape only gets you thrown into prison, where our portion this week concludes. So there's a lot to talk about in this week's portion. Let's get to it. In the recap, I alluded to the pacing and storytelling in this week's episode, and I was immediately reminded of classic 90s sitcoms. And not necessarily in their content, although some of the moments in this week's portion could be played for laughs. And then I went back with the goat to the well to look for the holy prostitute, and she wasn't there. Like all good sitcoms, the plot lines in this week's portion are tight and resolvable. The plot lines also take place in typical sitcom settings, in our case, both the family hearth and the workplace. Also, like all good sitcoms, this week's portion has what folks in the biz call an A and a B storyline. An A storyline is the main plot of the sitcom running throughout the show and usually does not resolve itself until the final scene. The B storyline, or subplot, is secondary, hence the sub. Some folks talk about a C storyline, otherwise known as character arc, where we see our hero's flaws, and the hero realizes the flaw and eventually overcomes the flaw in the final challenge or the climax, but I suppose one could work a C storyline in. It'd be kind of hard-pressed to do that, you know, if you had only 22 minutes. If you had more than 22 minutes, you could probably fit it in. Or in my case, more like 18 minutes. Anyway, it, it's clear from reading these chapters in the Andrew Lloyd Webber songbook that the story of Yosef is the A storyline, the main plot of this dysfunctional family sitcom. The story of Tamar has B storyline written all over it, except it, it's not really all that clear which figures in both the A or B storyline is supposed to be the standard fixture of a typical sitcom. And when I mean, I mean the hero, the anti-hero, the love interest, and the buddy. So let's start with an easy one, the love interest. That's Tamar, right? Underneath the brash, holy prostitute exterior, there's actually a sweet, innocent widow looking for the right man who won't die before impregnating her with a male child. But is Tamar the streetwalker with the heart of gold or just a gold-digging well-lingerer? Hmm. Uh, you decide. One could say, and I tend to agree, that Tamar is clearly the B-storyline hero. She's jerked around by her father-in-law slash anti-hero Yehuda, who willfully keeps her stuck in matrimonial limbo until he figures out what to do with her. When Yehuda withholds Shelah and withholds him for what seems like years, fearing that Tamar will somehow cause his death as well, Tamar does something that no female in the Tanakh has done. She does for herself. She springs into action and gets herself pregnant, and though running the risk of getting killed, she secures an outcome unheard of in traditional patriarchy. She secures her position in the household without the tedium and tenuousness of a husband. She can never be almost supplanted as Hagar almost does to Sarah by producing the male heir Sarah could not. She can never find herself widowed and sidelined as she was when Er died. She has provided Yehuda with more sons, the sons of which eventually produce Boaz in the book of Ruth, who, as I said before, eventually produces King David. Shia, Shia, Shia. 
In other words, she is golden and can rest easy, secure in her position and status. Thank you for being a friend. But what about the A storyline? Is Yosef the hero? Are the brothers the anti-heroes? And who's the buddy? This is not so easy to parse, especially since the Tanakh preceded the sitcom by a couple of millennia, so it might not line up exactly. However, Yosef's story does take longer than 22 minutes to unfold and does have a character arc. But I suppose Yosef provides a great opportunity to discuss a question that has been lurking in the wings of Tanakh cast since episode one, The Phantom Menace. Is Adam, or Noach, or Sarah, or Avraham, or Rivka, or Yitzchak, or etc., etc., etc.? Are they likable characters? Claire Massoud, the author of the Penn Faulkner Award nominated When the World Was Steady in 1995 and three other well received novels, was, re- was interviewed just fairly recently in May of 2013 in one of those authory puff PC QAs in Publishers Weekly. At the center of Massoud's newest novel, The Woman Upstairs, is Nora who is, for lack of a better word, unlikable. The uh, interviewer offered the following comment, I guess, more like a, yeah, one of those question, comment type things. I wouldn't want to be friends with Nora, would you? Her outlook is almost unbearably grim. Misud replied as follows. You pompous, stuck-up, snot-nosed, English, giant, twerp, scumbag, Actually, it was a bit more dignified than that. For heaven's sake, what kind of question is that? Would you want to be friends with Humbert Tumbert? Would you want to be friends with Mickey Sabbath, Salim Sinai, Hamlet, Crap, Oedipus, Oscar Weo, Antigone, Raskolnikov, any of the characters in The Corrections, any of the characters in Infinite Jest? Any of the characters in anything Pension has ever written, or Martin Amis, or Oren Pamuk, or Alice Munro, for that matter, if you're reading to find friends, you're in deep trouble. We read to find life, in all its possibilities. The relevant question isn't is this a potential friend for me but is this character alive? which resulted in a huge kerfuffle on the interwebs with both male and female writers and male and female readers weighing in on this matter and others related to it. Some observed that this kind of question never gets asked of male writers, much in the same way that no one seems to ask men about their clothing or their high heels or hairstyles, or that somehow only female readers identify in this way with female protagonists and that female writers must provide likable females as friends. This question is only as relevant here as your attitude toward the Tanakh. If you regard the Tanakh as a work of fiction, then such a question might be worth considering. If you regard the Tanakh as the word of God or the instructions for living a decent and upright life or something somewhere in between, then these figures are not characters and their likability is irrelevant. They are, wait for it, role models, exemplars, moral paragons. Love them and not leave them. One of the more intelligent comments about the Claire Massoud kerfuffle was... You pompous duck up. No, not that one. The other one. The other one. From Margaret Atwood, quote, Intelligent readers do not confuse the quality of a book with the moral rectitude of the characters. 
I would say that when it comes to the Tanakh, intelligent readers do not confuse the moral rectitude of the characters with the quality of the book. This just might be the last word about this topic. Thanks, Margaret Atwood. Another persistent theme raging since episode one is... Sibling rivalry, or in other words, the hatred brother has for brother. One really has to marvel at the kilotonnage of animosity these siblings have for each other. I mean, I have an older brother, and we've had our scraps, but at no point did he ever consider selling me into slavery. He did push my stroller down some stairs with me in it, but throw me down a well? Well, maybe if there had been a well nearby, perhaps, but he was little. And he wouldn't have been able to convince my parents that wild squirrels devoured me, leaving only a tattered, bloody cloth diaper. This last iteration of the sibling rivalry is utterly devastating for its scope. And when I say scope, I mean the sheer number of people involved. You have the brothers who swarm and assault Yosef with murderous intent, although Reuven has some qualms about killing, as does Yehuda later, although he's perfectly okay with selling his brother to some Midianite slavers. But I've always wondered about Reuven's role in this sad business. So the brothers see Yosef coming, and before Yosef even arrives, they are angry. Here comes the master dreamer, they say, and begin to plan the murder. But Reuven urges them not to kill Yosef, but to throw him in down a well, quote, in order that he might save him from their hand to return him to his father. So the brothers relent and accept Reuven's plan, but then Reuven leaves abruptly. Where did he go? And for how long? But by the time he comes back from wherever he went, which was a pretty critical time to absent yourself from the scene, Yehuda has stepped in to be the voice of reason and prevail upon his brothers not to kill Yosef, who by now has been stripped and thrown down a well. Instead, Yehuda proposes a wise compromise. Let's sell Yosef into slavery. Some compromise. So when Reuven discovers that Yosef is missing, he has no choice but to go along with the brothers' plan. The ornamented coat is soaked in blood, and the brothers agree on their story. Quote, we found this. Pray recognize whether it is your son's coat or not. And they stand there and watch as their father falls apart, rending his clothes, donning sackcloth, and wailing, No, I will go down to my son in mourning to Sheol. They stand by and watch as Yaakov's pain overwhelms him, refusing to be comforted at the tragic loss of his beloved son. So yes, back to the A storyline. Is Yosef its hero? If he is, he's clearly flawed, quite unlikable. Yada, yada, yada. <laughs> but I'm comfortable with calling Yosef this story's hero. The narrative, as in the story of Cain and Hevel, positions us to side with Hevel and does the story of Yaakov and Esav, where the text rallies us to support Yaakov and his various duplicities, even though I still kind of feel bad for Esav. Here, too, we're supposed to side with Yosef in his lopsided struggle with his brothers. And even though he's an obnoxious twit at the outset, we can't help but feel bad for him as he lay there stripped and bloodied at the bottom of the well. And when his own brothers sell him into slavery, we can't help but wince and cringe and want to look away as Yosef changes hands and heads off into an uncertain future. <laughs> As always, you can leave a comment, question, or comment at the Facebook page at facebook.com slash TanakhCast, that's T-A-N-A-K-H-C-A-S-T, or at thenextjew.com, or leave a comment, question, or comment at the iTunes store. 
And while you're at it, why not leave a review? That way, other folks who are looking for a little Tanakh learning might discover this humble podcast and join in the fun. As always, you're invited to come back and join us next week-ish for episode 12 on Genesis chapters 40 through 43. Y'all come back now, here.